Acts chapter 8, 1 to 8. Let's hear God's word. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen, who was a deacon. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Let's pray and then you can be seated. Father, we come to your word now. I pray with soft hearts, ears to hear, and wills to obey, Lord. It is not natural within us to seek and obey the living God, but by your spirit, you have called us into this relationship in which you are Lord and we are worshipers. And so I pray now that you would speak to your people, that you would feed them and shepherd them through um, your servant. Lord, for we are all here to serve you and to seek you uh, because we know that you may be found. You have revealed yourself in your son the living God, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. So we are eager to hear from you, Lord, now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim, you can probably take my mic down just a little bit. I'm not warning that I'm going to yell, but this is the text of the persecuted church. We read Psalm 118, 17 to 24. That's a psalm, really, the meditation of the oppressed, the meditation of the servant of God who is oppressed. We, we read that princes sit plotting against me, but I have kept your testimonies. Now we read that out and we recognize that Christ was the one who kept the testimonies of God and Christ is the one who had princes plotting against him and Christ overcame and kept his statues and and revealed God to us. And so it is in that hope that we read that psalm, recognizing that whatever goes on in the world, as we cling to and as God reveals his statutes and his word to us, that we labor on in weakness and rejoicing. And so I do want to make a note, actually. I never got around to putting my phone number up there, but I, Lord willing, will leave uh, about 10, maybe even 15 minutes to actually answer questions at the end of this service um, Jake had a great comment last week in the service, and I wonder how many people are thinking things, and you would pray for the boldness of Jake to speak out, but sometimes some of you are more shy and, and restrained, and so I thought, you know what, people need a chance to respond and to ask, and so many of you have my phone number in your phones, but my number, and you can text me, I'm going to have my phone in my pocket, actually I'm going to put it right down here, and you can text me, I'm going to put it on silence, so it's not going to go ding ding the whole time, but text me a question. And at the end of the service, if anything came up in you that you want to understand better or that I didn't make clear, I'll hopefully I have a chance to address that. So my number is 613-390. You can put it into your phone. 390-1169. 390-1169. Uh, 
Uh, if you don't have it, ask a neighbor. They probably do. I text a lot of you. So we're back in the book of Acts. Uh, we're back where we left off almost two months ago. Remember we did Acts 1-7? to And then we took a short break to do the discipleship series, Discipleship 101 through Ephesians chapter 4. We had a couple guest speakers. We had a, <clears throat> a message on creation. We've had a message on, from Isaiah 1 and 55 about the tree which bears fruit. I finally finished discipleship last week. And then I asked for prayer as to where the Lord would have us go back in the word. Uh, because that, as I've mentioned before, is a difficult part of uh, being a preacher is, is understanding what are the needs of our people right now? What, what are the things that God is pressing upon us as a people that need to, we need to lean into, we need to absorb, we need to obey better? And as I said, the Bible's a big book. It's going to take a long time to preach through it. And <clears throat> so I was asking for prayer for that. And uh, Jake and I, after what Jake had mentioned last week about the, the encroaching persecution or oppression of the church, and those two things kind of came together, and I read Acts chapter 8, 1 to 8, and here we have the dawn of the persecution of the church. And I thought, God has made clear that this is, uh, <clears throat> this is where he wants us to pick up. And I'm so glad to be back in the, the narrative of, of the book of Acts. And so where we left off, we saw uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. That's the first verse in our chapter. And so what's the context there? Remember that Stephen was one of the seven who were chosen to serve tables. Back when the widows were not getting properly served at, at the feasts in the church, and seven devout, spirit-filled men were chosen to help take care of this issue. And, and Stephen was one of them. And we learned actually that Stephen had quite a gift in the word. In fact, he was given a, what I would call even a prophetic gift, and he began preaching, and he began receiving uh, threats. He began receiving opposition. Immediately, he, was, he, he had almost the spirit of a prophet that was immediately rejected, and he was speaking to a contrary people in Jerusalem. And the high priest pulls him in front of them, the high priest and his family, and they say, will you answer these charges? Have you been going around teaching that the temple will be destroyed and that we don't need to observe the law of Moses? And then he takes them through. We did that long series of the history of Israel through Abraham and Jacob and Joseph um, and even Solomon and David. And Stephen essentially shows them that they have been ignorant against God's redemptive narrative and they have not understood the Old Testament properly because in the Old Testament, it prepares for a Messiah who would come and fulfill the law and would be the word and would be the temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. He was talking about his body of which he is the head and he has made us members, right? And so the temple is alive and well today. And we are one small part of that temple. And so they did not understand the Old Testament and he condemns them in that because they have missed God's redemption. And then we meet Saul, who is standing by, and he holds the coats of those, the high priest and those with him. Says that they rushed at Stephen with their ears stopped up, literally, and they stoned him. They stoned him. They were enraged. And we think of that verse in Isaiah where God says, I have 
hardened their hearts and I have blocked their ears that, that, they, that they cannot hear. This is a people who have turned away from God. And so we meet Saul who stands there and he approves of the execution of the church's first real martyr. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus had laid his own life down for the redeeming of his people. This was a martyr who, because of his ministry, because of his word, was murdered, was executed. <clears throat> and Saul is standing by. Now, we're going to learn through the book of Acts that Saul becomes perhaps the most well-known character in the New Testament era for the rest of church history. He becomes the most prolific church planter in church history, probably. And he becomes the author of the bulk of the New Testament scriptures. Now, that's an amazing story to see the transformation in Saul's life. But at this point, he is standing by approving of the execution of one of, uh, of a churchman, of a preacher. He stands by and says, uh, it is good that he's being killed. And so <clears throat> I, I have three headings in my, in my message this morning. Why is the church persecuted? How does the church react in persecution? And how does the world respond to faithful witness? That's what our text outlines for us. So our first question is, why is the church persecuted? The church has now been thriving in Jerusalem. I don't know for how long, but it's very early on in the ministry of the church. We have seen thousands converted. Upwards of 5,000 people populated this early church. It was a place where the Jews had been worshiping God for centuries. And many of them, when they heard about Christ, they accepted him because they had sort of, they had the backstory. And instead of rejecting the Messiah, they accepted him. And there were thousands of converts. There were miracles being put on display at the hands of the apostles. We learn in Acts chapter 2, these things were a display and proof of God's transition into the new covenant. Joel chapter 2, which Peter preaches on, says, In these last days I will pour out my spirit, and your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will prophesy, and uh, your, all of your servants will receive the Holy Spirit. Men, women, children, those in the covenant will receive the spirit, and they will be ministers to Christ. And so God is displaying the proof that this is being fulfilled. He brings back this passage from Joel and says, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. So the church is thriving in these conditions. Problem is, though, for the church, that the same authorities who executed or brought Christ for his execution are still there and they're still in power. The high priest is still presiding over temple worship. And this high priest hates Christ, hates what he preached, hates the, the doctrine of the kingdom according to Christ. And those who ultimately dragged Jesus into the Roman courts to say he must die are now pursuing the same action against those who are preaching Christ, which is obviously very natural, right? And Jesus predicted it. He said to them, if, if they hate me, if they hated me first, they will hate you. It's nothing personal. They hate me. Those were the words of Christ when he was uh, wor working with and walking with the disciples and so Stephen's speech in front of the high priest, who is the highest authority in, in the Jewish culture at that time, because they did not have a king over them. They, they were under Rome at the time. And so the high priest was sort of the big deal. Stephen's speech to them was a final proclamation of judgment. There's no invitation to repent in Stephen's speech. And you'll notice a difference between when Peter preaches and Stephen does. Peter demands and commands them to repent. 
He commands them, repent and turn to Christ whom you crucified. Stephen does not give this invitation. He proclaims judgment on them. He says, you have broken this law. You are separate from God because they have heard invitations to repent all along. They witnessed the ministry of Christ. They witnessed the ministry of his apostles. And in fact, when Stephen, do you know what the last thing Stephen says is? Behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man sitting at the right hand of God. This was the last straw for those authorities. They rushed at him at this point. And I was talking with somebody and we were just, why with Jesus, they took the time to bring him to the Romans and say, this man has blasphemed, but we don't have the authority to kill him. So you need to crucify him for us. But with Stephen, they, they blow right through that. They don't care. They just go execute him. They go stone him. They don't bring him to Rome. Why the difference? Because with Christ, they thought they had control. With Christ, they thought they could silence him. With Christ, they thought we can execute him according to the Roman law and we will be um, safe before God because we will, not have, uh, we will not have negated his law. But with Stephen, he looked up and he said, I see the son of man. Not only did you crucify Christ, but he is now there sitting and presiding over your sin. And they won't hear this. They will not hear the, the conviction and the proof of their rebellion against God. The person that they crucified is now sitting on the throne in heaven. And it's compounded rage and they rush at him and they kill him. And, and, and Saul was there. And we're told that from that day, there arose a great persecution in Jerusalem. And so essentially, this execution of Stephen, <clears throat> this preacher, this is the shot that launched the war against the church. The church was essentially, in the first century, born into some of the worst church persecution that has ever existed in all time. Now, there are terrible things going on in the world, even today, in many countries, uh, Canada experiences almost complete relative safety in our faith right now, uh, but things are changing. And in much of the world, there is not the same enjoyment of freedom that we have. This type of gathering is absolutely unfathomable to many Christians in the world. For fear of death, persecution, being jailed, families being torn apart. The church was born into this and it was launched by this first martyr. It says there arose that day in Jerusalem, a great persecution. Now, why does that happen? Why all of a sudden a great persecution? When the church is thriving in Jerusalem, how do they feel like they can launch this persecution? Friends, what we see is the church coming in contact with the dominant worldview in society. What we see is the church coming in contact with and confronting the dominant religious view of a culture. In those days, it was Judaism. It was Judaism that had departed from God. It was apostate Judaism. And they were condemned in that. The church confronted their rebellion against God by rejecting his servant, and they would not tolerate it. And this may confuse us. I mean, why? These are Jews killing preachers religiously, this doesn't make much sense in our minds. It would be like another pastor coming and killing another pastor. 
Sort of, not exactly, but I mean, why is this taking place? Jesus, we have to remember, also predicted this. He said, the days are coming when those who kill you will think that they are serving God. Saul thought, the high priest thought, I am serving God because these people are rebellious against you. They are preaching another God, right? Jesus, when he declared himself to be the son of man, they said, uh, you speak blasphemously because no one makes himself equal with God. Well, guess what? Jesus is equal with God. And so they think they are protecting God's honor by killing Christian preachers. Saul thought that. He later gives his testimony and says, I was once zealous for the law of God. I was a zealous persecutor of the church. I was following God to the best of my ability by persecuting the church. And he describes his conversion and how that all changed. But this is what's going on. This is how the church was born. This is the, the culture into which the church began. <clears throat> now, again, we have to ask, why is persecution the consequence? Why can't we just be ignored? Why doesn't the culture just ignore this kind of confrontation? Why did the high priest have to kill Jesus? Why did they have to kill this martyr, this preacher? Friends, the reason is because our faith, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of Jesus Christ calls everything into submission to Christ. Everything must be in submission to Christ. There is no neutral ground in the gospel. There are no neutral people. There are no neutral institutions. Any kingdom or thought structure which elevates man above God cannot tolerate Jesus. The Jewish system at the time had man at the top. Man was the pinnacle expression in their own minds. And when Christ came and made himself greater than them, and demanded their submission, they said, we will not surrender our version of the kingdom. And so they had placed themselves above, which meant they could not tolerate Christ. They would not share a throne with Christ. I love this verse that describes the ministry of the church. 2 Corinthians 10, 15. This is the New Living Translation, how it says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing Christ. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. In other words, anything that the church confronts, which has been raised above Christ, we destroy. We tear down. We dismantle so that people can come to Christ. We tear down, another translation says, we tear down every lofty thought that is raised against the knowledge of Christ. When we are confronted with ideas and systems which are raised above Christ, we tear them down. That's the ministry of the church among many other things, but we tear down lofty ideas that are raised up above Christ. And that is intolerable to a culture which says we are the center. Man is the center. I am the center. A gospel that puts Christ as the Lord of all things is intolerable. So persecution targets first a faithful church. A faithful church because a church that will not preach this confrontation, this lordship of Christ, will be ignored by the society. As I said last week, the only thing worse than the church being outlawed would be for the church to be outlawed and none of us to get arrested. Because they don't notice us as Christians. We don't act like Christians. We don't speak like Christians. We blend 
in. That would be worse. And so persecution targets a faithful church, a faithful preacher, a faithful minister, which is each one of you. Now, this is interesting. What type of message does the church have? We have a message, again, that confronts idolatry, that confronts rebelliousness, that confronts thought systems which are raised above God. We do not preach to where people are what we think close to God. We preach to where people are far from God. This is an important distinction because much of what the church wants to do because it is a lot more palatable when we speak to people, is we want to point out in people's lives all the ways that they are almost like a Christian, or they are almost like God, or they are very near. We want to highlight the things in their life and say, look, you're already almost like a Christian. We want to, we want to speak to where they are close to God, but what did Jesus do when he met the young, rich ruler in Mark chapter 10? The ruler said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he says, all I, I've done all those for my youth. That's great news. I'm very close. I've kept most of the commandments, Lord. And then what does Jesus do? He hits him where he's far. He says, then go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And that was too much. He hit the rich young ruler where he was furthest from God, which was his greed. Friends, why were they so enraged? Because Stephen hit them where they were furthest from God. They were religiously pious and devoted, but he did not start there and say, now look, I see how sincere you are. I see how you know, you're holding together the, the commandments and testimonies of God and the traditions. And you know, now you just need Christ. He says to them, you know nothing. You are so far from God because you reject Christ. My friends, that is where every person is who does not know the Lord. It does not matter, does not matter what they have lived through or their background or anything. They, if they do not have Christ, they do not have the Father. And so persecution targets a faithful church, a church that does not alter or shave down or sugarcoat the gospel, the lordship of Christ. I should point out as well that when the Bible describes persecution, it involves death and imprisonment. My friends, I will say almost without equivocation that the church in Canada is not persecuted. We've seen a lot of things that upset us. We see a lot of immoral activity and legislation and negative things coming through political system or the education system, there are a lot of things that upset us as Christians. Relative to the world, relative to the scriptures, the church in Canada is not persecuted. We have absolute freedom to preach, to convert, to love people, to serve Christ. In fact, there are institutions in this town who are seeking to do a better job with mental health and they are asking pastors for help because they need help. They don't know how to help people with mental health issues and they're asking pastors. So my friends, the church is free and we need to operate under that freedom with diligence and vigilance while we have it. Vigilance, sorry. The Bible describes persecution as death and imprisonment. May God grant us courage 
to operate when and where we have opportunity. So that's why is the church persecuted? Hopefully I've answered that question somewhat. Uh, number two, how does the church react in persecution? I love this. Now, now let's note that the apostles were not scattered. The apostles remained in Jerusalem because it was the central hub of the growth of the church, that people returned to Jerusalem when the church was growing in order to affirm different leaders and congregations. Um, We should make note of that. But then what happens? They were scattered to Judea and Samaria. In the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? You will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to all the ends of the earth. And so we see how through this tragedy, through this terrible activity that's going on, the persecution of the church, God is fulfilling his promise through Christ that the church would become a witness in these regions. And so they are scattered specifically to where Christ predicted that they would go and would be witnesses. Verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So how does the church react? They're scattered and then they went about preaching. We should make note that the church understands that ministry and evangelism, the Great Commission, does not take place into a neutral vacuum. But our ministry and the kingdom that we serve exists in opposition to the principalities in the world that was once fully ruled by Satan. As I mentioned before, I believe Satan was bound in some specific way at the cross of Christ so that the gospel could go out to all nations which I think is specifically why you see so much demon possession in the early uh, stages of church ministry because Satan had such a grip on the nations outside of Israel. And this is the world into which the church is moving. A world once ruled by Satan and now Christ has been given authority over these regions. Everywhere where the kingdom advances, there is a battle, there is opposition, there is confrontation. And so they're scattered into Samaria and Judea as a result of this confrontation. And they have just witnessed the cost of preaching. They just witnessed one of their leaders be stoned to death for preaching. How does the church react? They went about preaching the word. They are undeterred. They are unafraid. They are clearly more devoted to the glory of Christ and the mission that he has given them than their own lives. That's the way every Christian needs to approach his or her own salvation. That the glory that we are to receive in Christ is absolutely incomparable with that which we might suffer in life. So they went about preaching. This little phrase, they went about preaching, is a phrase that's used all through the rest of Acts as sort of a an indication of the missionary efforts of the church. It's the church with an ambition to spread the gospel. It's a church with an ambition to preach the word of God, to see Christ rule and reign everywhere they go. Everywhere the church goes, they preach into the darkness. They preach the lordship of Christ. They preach salvation by faith in Christ that the church may be formed in tiny ways everywhere they go. And by the time the latter parts of the New Testament are written, the author is saying, I need you to go install elders at all these churches. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Isn't that an amazing picture of the ministry of the church? Through us spreads the knowledge of him everywhere, the fragrance of the knowledge, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and of death among those who are perishing. Who is sufficient for these things? (laughs) For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. This is sort of the anthem of the church. We go everywhere. We are led by God in triumphal procession in Christ. Even when we are killed, we are a fragrance of life to those who are being saved and of death to those who are in rebellion. So how does the church respond in oppression? The church responds by preaching Christ, by preaching the word. We preach Christ. Now, lest you think that that means Tim preaches Christ, make sure Tim just keeps preaching Christ. Absolutely, that that's, I'm accountable to do that. But friends, we're talking about the ministry of the body of Christ. We're talking about everywhere where the church goes, in every situation and station in life, God's people are always advancing and taking with us the ministry of reconciliation. Despite the challenges and the opposition that might be around, the oppression. So that's how the church responds. They went about, they were faithful, they had witnessed persecution, and yet they were undeterred by it. And we see this fellow named Philip. Now this is not Philip who was one of the twelve apostles. Um, This is likely Philip, who was one of the seven deacons, along with Stephen. So he's a contemporary of Stephen. It's kind of neat, because he and Stephen were picked together. They became deacons together in the church to serve tables. And then when Philip's co-worker Stephen is killed, Philip almost takes up that cause and begins to preach. And he goes off to Samaria. And he takes up the work of Stephen, preaching and proclaiming Christ. He proclaimed to them the Christ, and so we see that message. And here in verse 6, we see the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. We need to make sure we focus on this for a minute, because how do we see the world responding to a faithful witness? We see that the people with one accord were paying attention to what he said. Now, this does not mean that everywhere we go, people will be hanging off every word that we say. But what it does teach us is that the gospel warrants attention. Especially in our day and age, I would say one of the greatest battles that the church faces is just to draw people away from distraction. How much more effective would our ministry be if we were able to help pry people away from the things that constantly distract them from reality, from their own, the groaning of their own conscience and their own souls? The gospel warrants, warrants attention. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel warrants attention. Again, one of the worst things that the church can do in times where people are apathetic to the gospel is to say, well, we can make it enjoyable for you. We can wrap it up in entertainment. We can park motorcycles on the stage. We can drop confetti from the roof. We can make our music louder and better than anything you've ever seen. Maybe then you'll enjoy the gospel. What a travesty to the purity and the goodness of God when humanity tries to dress it up with foolishness. I'm all for motorcycles and confetti, but when it comes to the gospel of Christ, anything we do to try to add to it or try to make it appealing or sweeter or better is a distraction. 
that detracts from the power of the gospel. Philip comes and he preaches to them what? The Christ. He preaches the gospel to them and they were there, they were paying attention. The demons flee and the people were healed. Again, this is a continuation of those signs that God was promising during this time of transition into the new covenant. Again, this is not just coincidental or neutral, but when the gospel is entering a place of darkness, literally demons were fleeing as proof of the power of Christ, that Christ was displacing evil and replacing it with good. That he was demonstrating the kingdom that was to come. Right? When, when Jesus did signs and miracles, John especially, in the Gospel of John, calls them signs. In other words, these are pointing forward to something. These are pointing forward. When Jesus turned water into wine, God has saved the very best for last. This is what God had been promising. This is the new covenant, the new wine. These are signs of the coming kingdom where death will be no more, where Christ will reign and where there will be no rebellion against him. And the people, what does it say? They rejoice together. There was much joy in that city. So this is the amazing thing to recognize is that although the church is persecuted and killed for its message, the church goes on, led in triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of Christ and advancing secretly and almost imperceptibly through the world. What did Jesus compare the advance of the kingdom to? Like leaven going through a loaf of bread. Like leaven going through a loaf of bread, just permeating, just working one person to another and influencing the world in a slow but unstoppable way. It's done through the preaching and understanding and obedience to the word and it produces joy and obedience. That's what we have to recognize is that when the kingdom advances, people are transformed to obedience to God and joyfully serving him with a clean conscience. And so I want to point out for you from this outline, from these eight verses, there's a strong pattern of the gospel. And I want you to make note of this for your own life, for your own ministry. I chose three words that start with C. I didn't really choose them. They're just good words. The gospel confronts. The gospel converts and the gospel conforms. The gospel confronts every thought that is raised against Christ. It confronts rebellion. It confronts disobedience. It confronts you where you are far from God. And that is a painful process. That is a difficult process. That is a challenging word for the church. That the gospel must first confront. But we have hope because the gospel converts. When people are confronted in their sin, some rage and some repent. So many are converted by the hearing of the gospel. They turn in repentance of, in faith. They receive the Holy Spirit. They are transformed to become children of God. The gospel confronts, the gospel converts. And then what happens? There was much joy in that city. The gospel conforms. The gospel brings the repentant sinner in conformity to Christ, shedding those remnants of the old life, the old patterns of sin, the old patterns of self-indulgence, the old things that we used to do. The New Testament has many descriptions of how we used to be. 
And we're always reminded, but you, you were once like this, but now put that off and renew your mind in Christ. And the gospel conforms. It takes rebels and sinners and makes them white, obedient children of God. What a blessing. Communities are transformed. Families are transformed. The gospel confronts, converts, and conforms. But friends, we cannot conform the unconverted. And we cannot convert the unconfronted. We cannot woo people into the kingdom with promises of blessing and peace and happiness. Why? Because the church has not promised that. In fact, the church has promised a way rougher ride. You'll be persecuted for the name of Christ. So why would anybody come willingly? Because Christ is the treasure. Christ is the prize. Christ is the center. But Christ will not share a throne with our idols, which is why the gospel confronts. We cannot invite Christ into our lives and make him our co-pilot. Christ is Lord of all and, and demands total submission and total repentance. That's why the gospel confronts. So that's the hope. How does the world respond to a faithful witness? We read in scriptures that God has many more to save. And that the reason why Jesus has not come back yet is because not everyone is saved who will yet be saved. The ministry, the mission continues on until the fullness of the church has come in. So we want to conclude with a few reflections. Number one, the church was born into persecution. It was born into a, the Roman Empire. Rome eventually came to use Christians as burning street lamps to light the sidewalks for citizens. Again, what does persecution look like? So how do we think about our time? If the church was this wildly successful is, is a weak word, but if the church had this much influence and growth in the first century against so much opposition, how should we think about our time? And in what ways does what we believe confront our culture? We insist in a sovereign God who's above man, that man is not ultimate, and again, I want to refer back to our mini little discussion in the middle of the sermon last week. Of course, we see laws being passed that, are, uh, that shrink and curtail the conscience of a Christian. We see an education system devoted to the autonomy of self and of the individual. So how does our doctrine confront this culture of autonomy and rebellion against self. We have a culture that believes we have the power over life and death. From conception to, all the way to end of life, humanity is now believing that we have the authority to give life and to take it. How does the Christian doctrine speak into that? As Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We preach that God is the author of life and that he is the finisher of life and that in his sovereign plan do we have our days. Paul quotes in, Roma, in the book of Acts, in him we move and consist and have our being. Whether you know God or not, your heartbeat ticks because of him. And so we preach that God is sovereign over life. This is not popular in a time where, we believe, where the culture wants to control life, how it starts and when it ends. 
And so we ought to come in contact with that. We ought to be confronted by that. We ought to come in confrontation with those ideas, not harshly or or for the sake of being right, but in order to win people to Christ. We tear down lofty ideas raised against the knowledge of Christ in order that people can believe in him. How does humanity desire autonomy in our identity? By teaching that every natural structure in place by God is societal and and up for debate and up for change. And again, I'm not trying to play on some one-string guitar. But when children are taught that they are the masters of their own identity and that they can describe and become exactly whatever they want, that is in a way rejecting, not in a way, it absolutely is rejecting the sovereign creator who has made everything in its time and for its own purpose. When God made Adam and Eve, he said it, it was very good. And so, my friends, it it, it should not be a surprise to us that when we preach Christ, we come in contact, we confront these ideas. And we're not going to have to wait. These issues are coming to our doorstep. These battles, these, these ideas, these structures are coming to us. We will be confronted on these ideas. Every single one of my messages is is on public display and podcast. So you may be thankful that you don't, you know, you don't have any of your stuff recorded and up there, but it's coming, my friends. People are going to hold us to account for what we believe. But you know what's amazing? I think that's an amazing opportunity for the church because it forces us to understand what we believe, to articulate it clearly and lovingly, and it gives us an opportunity in a time where we used to be comfortable coasting along, understanding that culture basically agreed with most of the stuff we said. Now we're all shocked because there's a confrontation between us, but it gives the church an opportunity to speak rightly, to articulate our answers, to understand what we believe. Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So as the church, we need to become so clear about the gospel and why we believe it and how it has changed us. As I said, I don't think the church has the luxury anymore to just coast through culture thinking, you know, Basically, what we're doing is approved by people. It's just whether or not they choose to affiliate with us. So what does the church need to do? The church needs to teach our children. The church needs to equip families to educate our children. We need to revitalize education. We need to revitalize public worship. We need to revitalize how we think about our vocations and how we carry with us the ministry and the message of Jesus Christ. I thought it... Interesting that Bill 84 was mentioned last week about euthanasia, and this church is probably some 25% doctors and nurses. Unbelievable amount of people in the public health system in this church, and we have a lot of teachers. We have a lot of public servants. I mean, we have folks in this church who are constantly facing the contradiction of the Christian message. And what do we do? What should a doctor do when it becomes illegal to exercise your conscience and to care for a patient rather than to offer them death? You continue offering compassionate and life-saving care to every single person in Jesus' name. Teachers, lawyers, whoever you are, you keep on asserting the lordship of Christ. You keep on presenting Christ as Lord, tearing down every lofty thought that is raised against Christ in Jesus' name. You continue to serve and speak of his lordship. Opposition can be scary, 
It can be difficult, but as I said, it gives the church the time to be, to be purified. When, when Jesus spoke of the four types of soil and the seed being scattered, he said one of the types is when seeds fell among uh, thorns and the, the things started growing up, the plants, the good plants started growing up, but then the cares of this world came and, and choked them out. And there's another one, when the sun came, it scorched the plants those are two, it's distraction and pleasure, and it's opposition and difficulty. Burns away those seeds that are not planted in good soil. So the, my friends, the church is purified, and the church is uh, clarified in how we articulate the gospel. Which is why I pray as we continue through God's word, our minds are renewed and sharpened in the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of salvation. Because friends, this is not just an exercise. You are being equipped every single time you sit under God's word and every time you meditate on it together, you are being equipped for how you will answer, for how you will live, for how you will raise your children, for how you will love your wife or your husband, for how you will conduct yourself in the workplace. You are being equipped every single time God opens his word to you. You're being equipped to step into that realm, to step into that arena of confrontation. You are being equipped. And Jesus said, I am with you until the end of the age. All authority is mine. So who has the authority when we go out into a world that absolutely despises Christ? Who has the authority? Christ does. So that gives us every hope that our message will not be fruitless. Our message will not be pointless. Our message will not be to the detriment of the church, but it will build the church and it will continue to Draw men and women to Christ. And so that's the beginning of persecution. We're going to see a lot more of it in Acts. And um, what an amazing time to study it and to recognize it as a church.